Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. Today, we're here with Helen Devine, who is a UX research manager at The Economist. Thank you so much for joining us. We're very excited to have you here today and to talk about upskilling product folks to do great research, a subject near and dear to our hearts. Oh, great. I'm looking forward to talking about it. Yeah. And we got Jay here too. Yeah, it's funny that the timing of this recording is uh, with somebody from The Economist is right after all the, <laughs> the bank run stuff. It feels like we should be talking <laughs> Can about we just that, talk but, uh, about Silicon Valley Bank instead? Yeah. Be, yeah. That's the user research of that. Um, but no, I think uh, the topic we have is a very important one and, and uh, like evergreen. People are always talking about this and, and very uh, important. So excited to get into it. Awesome. Um, yeah, so as I mentioned, this is a topic that we're thinking about a lot, user interviews. Um, there are, it turns out, a lot more product people, or as we call them, powder, people who do research, doing research than researchers. And so this is a, a fact that doesn't seem to be going away, nor is it a bad thing, but it uh, creates some challenges and opportunities. So uh, yeah, why are you interested in this? I know why we are, but why, why is this a topic that's important to you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the same, really, in that it's really pertinent where I work, because there's three of us user researchers and over 50 people in product. And so there's loads of opportunities because people are really interested in it, really want to do research. There's loads of demand. And I also think for most product folks, it's it's such a core part of their skill set and development is being user centered. So, yeah, so there's loads of opportunities. There are a few cons sometimes as a researcher as well. So I think it's, it just feels like the industry's kind of grappling with it a bit, doesn't it? And that whole, like, democratization by researchers or of research or, you're like, you know, what, what does it look like to enable and empower people while also really still highlighting that research is a skill and a discipline in its own right? Yeah, there seems to be a lot of tension there of if you kind of help people improve at it. You're maybe devaluing the craft and the skill, but if you help people improve, there's utility because they probably are going to talk to, you know, users in the course of their work. And so now they're doing it in a better way. Um, so it's an interesting kind of push and pull there. Um, when we talk about these product roles, who um, are you kind of referring to? So you mentioned like, you know, a lot of them in your organization, is that just product managers, product designers, or who's in that umbrella? Yeah, so it's product designers in the main. So they're the ones, I guess, probably that do the most research that I work with. And yeah, there's about sort of 17 of them or so here at The Economist, but also product managers. And then, you know, I'm trying to involve more and more people. So, you know, I, I want everyone to get involved and research is a team sport and all that thing. But it's probably the product designers and the product managers are the ones who've most been involved in this so far with me. Okay. How many uh, researchers did you say that you had? You said you were about 50, I think, product managers and product designers. So I'm just getting that ratio in my head. Yeah, so there's, yeah, there's about 50 of, of I and mean, it's not a them and us. I've just said it like that, but it's not, there's three of us. So yeah, I, I sort of manage the team three. and then I've got, two, yeah, I've got two user researchers that work with me. Um, I've been at The Economist for just over a year and I've kind of set this up from scratch, really. So we didn't really have, UX research as a discipline before that. I think there were like contractors or freelancers, you know, that came in and helped out. And there were product people doing their own research. But um, yeah, I've come in and sort of set up more processes and lots of templates and doing lots of training and coaching. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's um, it's really stepped up. But the yeah, the people who are sort of professional user researchers are still 
relatively limited in our number. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, as these people, you know, these product folks, these powders, people who do research, uh, want to do research, I'm sure they're very well-intentioned. Um, you know, they want to be informed by the users and user-centric. Uh, and they're, you know, smart people. They obviously are very talented in their own areas. Where are some of the gaps that you see most commonly for for product people when they do research? Are there like consistent themes that you see? Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because um, often what they ask for is, you know, like understanding methods, qual and quant methods and knowing which method to use when. And, you know, some of those things which are fine and, you know, I have done quite a bit with them there. But to be fair, actually, the product folks that I work with here are, are great. They're really nice and we work really nicely together. And they're really open to when I'm suggesting things that maybe they should want. Because I think there's a lot around just that marking your own homework kind of neutrality bit that's so difficult when, you know, as a you know a product designer, you've spent a long time building a journey or what or, you know, like a prototype or whatever, and then you've got to let users critique it so I think there's you know there's quite a skill there isn't there of opening your mind up to it and making sure that you really feel like it's all positive and it's just going to help it get better and the people here are really good at that but I think yeah there's there's some of that more nuanced maybe mindset and approach actually that is the bit that I'm trying to push a bit more I feel like when it comes to the methods and the basics you can probably read about that a little bit and then as you choose your approach, then we can work together, you know, to make sure that you feel able to do it. And we've got tools and things. But the, yeah, there's there's a bit of that. And then there's also been some things that I've been teaching people about is like observing and note taking and, you know, some of that, which people think is straightforward. But I did find that when I came in and started sort of making a Miro board for people to take notes, you'd go back and look on it after a moderated interview and it'd just be overwhelming because there's just so much on there. And so, yeah, I did like a workshop, which was brilliant, actually, um, where we just sort of said, let's focus on the questions, focus on the objectives. You know, we can have a car park for that extra stuff. But, you know, like my one of my colleagues actually has done a really good job of that, of just showing the funnel. And, you know, if you do, if you, if you have your requirements that are great, then that'll feed into a really great plan. And then that'll make your note-taking really easy. And then you'll have your analysis and then your playback's really easy. You know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it's it's helping people think about the, it all the way through and just helping them make their own lives easy, actually. So some of that stuff, maybe people weren't so aware of as it, you know, if they, if they approach it a bit differently, it'll actually make their, their whole doing of the research and um, finding out what the research is telling them a little bit easier. When you work with uh, product designers, are they kind of running research through that full funnel from start to finish, or are they kind of jump in and out and have some enablement here and there from your team or how does that typically work? Um, <clears throat> we're kind of quite flexible and yeah. nimble and we'll, we'll work in different ways depending on what it is and who's got resource and how quickly we need to turn it around. So sometimes, yeah, product designers will do the whole thing and sometimes we'll work on it together. Um, generally, they'll have input. So we have office hours, like we call it a research surgery over here, but it's, it's office hours, you know, where people can come in. And I'd, I have said that I would prefer that everyone brings everything to it and we're never going to block things but it just helps us, you know, make sure we've got visibility of things. And, you know, if there's going to be a bit of duplication across squads, then we can we can work with that. So 
we always have an opportunity to talk through approach and timings and you know what the sample is and all that kind of thing but um yeah no people are doing the full full and so that's nice because it's quite rewarding isn't it when you get to uh, see it all the way through Nice. Yeah, that's great. You mentioned, uh, you know, not going to block things. And so, and you also mentioned like workshops. So I'm curious of like, uh, I think we've heard from other people of how they maybe do some of this enablement and training for folks. There's like, you know, you do it up front, education and enablement and resources and stuff internally, and then people can draw on it as needed. You can kind of co-pilot a study with them and be there as a buddy and help them. Uh, You can do more of like an oversight model where it's like, no, 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 we need to see everything comes through and we're going to, you know, approve it before you move forward. how would you say that maybe you're dividing your time across some of those different options or, or other categories that I might be missing entirely? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> uh, I'm just trying to think. <laughs> um, I guess because we've got the office hours, so that's kind of an hour a week where there's always time to talk things through. So I suppose that's where... I'm double checking if there's anything that we feel like we've already got the answer to or it doesn't make any sense or it's duplicating or we should do later. And then also an opportunity to say, let's amend the approach a little bit. Me and the two research, so we're sort of trialing different models internally, actually. So um, one of the researchers has been working across different things. But next quarter, he's just going to focus on one product. that's quite a big focus internally. The other researcher, we're trialing having her embedded in one of the squads, so in the apps squad here, because I really want actually us to be able to spot opportunities more and, you know, see where research can add things. And without being embedded to a certain extent, it's really difficult. Mm-hmm. So she's doing that. And then I'm kind of sort of taking a bit of a holistic view and then also um, working on some of the the big things that that cover lots of areas of the organisation. So time-wise, yeah, I mean, I, I do let the product designers get on with it if they want to. Um, so there's probably not all that much time having oversight. I think mm-hmm. it's more jumping in at the points where it helps. Um, yep. So, yeah, but because the other two, yeah, the other two researchers probably work alongside people a little bit more than I do because I've sort of, like, yeah, we've we've all set it up that way, so it works quite nicely. I hope that answers the yeah. Yeah. No. No. And maybe in a, a kind of follow-on or an adjacent question is, um, how do you manage to, you know, do this kind of support and enablement and, and upskilling alongside, you know, doing research yourself? Because I think something we've heard from other researchers is, you know, I'm here to do research and I have a skill and I want to be like hands-on doing research, and now I'm spending a ton of my time supporting like non-researchers. Have you been able to find a balance there that lets you still kind of, you know, do your thing when it comes to research and, and still lead? Yeah, yeah, that is a difficult one, actually, because also I feel like, in all honesty, you don't always get all the credit, like, you know, when you're coming along to your appraisal or anything like that with your manager, when you do spend a lot of time coaching, like, you, I feel like you've got to push that quite a lot, because obviously people don't necessarily see mm. that, because, you know, I want other people to get the glory, I don't want to have to shout about it, it's only when, you know, you've got to fill in your form at the end of the year that you have to <laughs> shout about it, so... Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's kind of, it's a balance. So there's certain points where one will take up more time than the other. So I think sort of when I was coming in, I probably spent actually more of my time doing the enabling and um, empowering people because I was 
building a lot of the templates and tools and processes and stuff. And so I was trying to collaborate whilst doing that to make sure that it actually met the needs of people internally. Now, because more of those are there, and it is a constant process to keep building that library and, you know, a constant coaching, but that's that's a little bit less now. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone's working in Agile, but they're also working on quarterly roadmaps. So there is a little bit of planning there. So I also let people know when I've got big things on. So then we can just sort of be mindful of each other's time a little bit. But you're absolutely right. Like I want to do the research. That's my favorite bit. I like managing and I like coaching and all that, but my favourite bit is the research. So, yes, it is important to have both. I think also they can sit alongside each other. So quite often I'll bring people into stuff I'm doing. So if I'm running a mm. you know, workshop to gather requirements or if I'm pulling together a topic guide or doing an analysis and synthesis session or they can sit in and you know watch my interviews, all of that stuff is actually achieves both. So I think that's you know, showing rather than telling is always a nice thing anyway, isn't it? So I think, yeah, that's often the approach that works well for everybody. Nice. It sounds like uh, there are a few areas that the product folks need to upskill specifically found. And it Mm -hmm. sounds like, you know, like you were saying, you can Google methods and learn about them. And of course, practice makes perfect. But maybe some common areas are, you know, an awareness of biases, um, note-taking and the need to sort of upskill there. Um, and you mentioned that workshops were a helpful way to teach some of this. Are there other tangible skills that folks who are maybe new to research or product designers, product managers should be aware of that might be blind spots or things to kind of try to upskill in proactively before jumping into research? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, I mean, I think the moderated interviews are, are often one that are a bit more mm-hmm. difficult for people because, you know, as a qualitative researcher, it, it does take quite a number of years to get comfortable with that. And I also feel like one of the interesting things is, is when you're sort of talking with people about upskilling them, it makes you reflect yourself as a researcher on actually what some of those softer skills are and some of the bits that are part of it are. So, in all honesty, the product people do more of the usability and the unmoderated testing, um, but they do do moderated as well as and when it's relevant. Um, and I think, yeah, one of the things that we've talked quite a lot about is, you know, how you make the conversation feel natural. So they'll often say when they're watching me that I'll feel like we're all we're just going all over the place, but actually we have ticked everything off. So that that's nice for them that I am doing mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, I mean, it's just to make it feel a bit more comfortable and to make sure the participants have the chance to express themselves. And I think, you know, sometimes you need to let participants just talk a bit about something else because it's going to build that rapport or actually it's demonstrating a point they're trying to make. And I have found that, you know, less experienced people sometimes, you know, just go through the topic guide without that and you just miss some bits. Um, so I think, yeah, there's there's that skill of having a, what feels like a natural conversation, but also, you know, being in charge of it and making sure you stick to time. I think there's also some of that analysis and synthesis that I've also found that people who are a bit less familiar can just overanalyze things and spend a very long time going through like, you know, full transcripts and, you know, all the notes. Whereas, you know, um, me and my researchers that I work with often will sort of analyze as we go a lot of the time and, you know, 
sort of figure out what the findings are and you know build hypotheses as we go so again it means you can turn things around very quickly at the end can't you and you know play about your findings because you you're pretty much there by the time you've finished your last interview so I think there's a bit around yeah some of some of those things that people are doing and they're not doing a bad job they could just probably take it up a level by yeah thinking about it a bit differently and um, yeah, I think there's just a bit as well about like being in the moment, isn't there? You know, well, ideally, I know you've got your topic guide there and your other screen, but just actually trying to be in the moment and sort of listen to the person and observe the person and, you know, empathize with the person and all that sort of stuff, rather than being so concerned with what your next question is. Mm-hmm, a lot of that mm-hmm. just comes through confidence, through experience as well, though, doesn't it? So I think there's quite a lot about just making people feel that, you know, as long as they've got the right consents, as long as they're not asking anything, you know, we're not in our line of work. We're generally not asking people about super sensitive, super confidential stuff. You know, I like I used to work for a homeless charity and like those interviews were totally different. This one mm-hmm. is generally about people consuming digital media and like listen to podcasts. It's it's fine. So like they yeah. don't have to worry too much. It's not that risky. And um, yeah, like, and we use like user testing. So again, like if they if they mess up one interview, it doesn't really matter. Like it, it's okay. So I think there's a bit about making people feel comfortable as well that like, you know, it, the worst is not going to happen here. Yeah. Yeah. And do you find that you're able to teach a lot of that through those workshops or do you tend to shadow people? I'm thinking of like, you know, sales folks will use gong or record videos and do training sessions by or like role playing. You could just imagine teaching some of this a variety of different ways. So I'm curious, you know, what's worked well for you? Yeah, so the workshops of more, we generally, when we run the workshops, they're generally shorter, you know, like 45 minutes, 55 minutes. And they're more to sort of collate you know, needs and gaps and those kind of things. And then maybe just talk about the basics. So actually getting people into it is a lot more of the shadowing. So it's a bit more often of having somebody observe me or one of the other researchers conducting an interview and then have a conversation afterwards about it. I do sometimes watch, observe others. However, I don't want to put them under loads of pressure and I do feel like, you know... (laughs) It's not that nice sometimes if you don't feel that comfortable knowing there's an observer there. So actually, I try not to do that very much and rather let people self-reflect a little bit. And I also think like all the product folks here, they're all really good. And I feel very confident with them, to be honest. So I don't feel like I need to helicopter that much. Yeah, I was curious on that of um, if you think of like, I'm just gonna make an arbitrary scale here, right? Of like one to 10 and 10 is like an amazing, perfect researcher. Uh, so research done by, you know, a professional user researcher, probably going to be, you know, eight, nine, 10, you know, depending on the methodology and whatever else, right? Where would you say in your experience, like having had a lot of exposure to product people doing research, where are they on that scale? Typically, are they starting like at a two? Is it a five? Like how, like, you know what I mean? Like how capable do they tend to be just kind of out of the gate? I mean, there's a massive, sure, sure. there's a massive difference. So, you know, some of them have no, have never really done it before. So they start off lower. Some have a lot of experience because I think that's the thing, isn't it? With everyone in product and our kind of roles, people come with all these different backgrounds. So I think that's one of the things actually that's useful when someone starts is to have a conversation with them and, and sort of see where their base level is. I think it depends on the method here though. You know, if you're mm. doing something 
like maybe a card saw or tree test or, you know, like um, sort of an unmoderated going through a, a user journey. I don't think there's all that much difference. There's maybe a bit of difference <laughs> in the analysis, but it it's a bit more, you know, logistics, practical, especially when you're sort of looking at like what point did somebody drop out of the journey or, you know, how long did this take? Those things that are much more about like the literal UX or even the UI. I feel like, yeah, I, I feel like the, whatever the number was is, it would be very similar. I think it's when you're getting into that more generative stuff where you, you know, you just, you're trying to find out what you don't know. You're exploring the wider context. I think that's where the professional researcher adds a lot because I think, you know, it's, it's not my fault if I work in product, but my role has a smaller scope, doesn't it? Because I'm there probably to work on one product. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to step back. And it's even like not in your job description in a way to step back because it's difficult to ask questions or, you know, let the person talk about all kinds of things. So I think that, yeah, so then I guess that's where I think the number would would be a diverge a bit more and that the sort of person who has research in their job title would be higher up the scale. Because, again, I think a lot of it's about mindset and approach and, you know, sort of the context you're coming um, to it with. Yeah, yeah. I was I was asking because I think um, I, I get the sense that, you know, people are afraid that when a non-researcher does research, it's going to be done so poorly that the you know results are useless or you're actually making the wrong decisions because you picked up the wrong signal. And I just I, I don't have a feel for like how often that worst case, you know, happens or is, is a real risk versus, you know, um, it's OK. It's not as done as well as it could have been done. But like we're moving in the right direction and we learn some things. and. Um, Maybe maybe that's a better way of trying to get at what I was asking. Like, I don't. Do you yeah. do you have you seen the worst case where it's like, oh, this was done so poorly, um, we shouldn't have done it at all, or we actually made a misstep as a result? I think I've seen it more when there's a bit too many conclusions jumped to, you know, from doing, you know, because I think as a researcher, you might only start with five or six interviews, but if you haven't found what you needed, you do some more, and you generally do that and then iterate and do some more. Hmm. And I think I have seen it where people have just done that sort of first stage and gone, right, we know everything, you know, one person said this, it's done. So hmm. I think there is a bit about... um Potentially, you know, us researchers could actually do better there to educate because I think we may maybe don't always explain our thought processes when when we've done one, like one round. We might not explain properly as to why we've made the decision to sort of, yes, we know this, but we don't quite know that yet. Yes, we feel like we've got an answer on this one. We need to explore this one further. We might not always explain that, right? So I think that's what I have seen is people drawing conclusions too early Hmm. Or again, sort of reporting back that something is an insight or found and it is a very low number of people who've said it, you know, like one or two people have said it. And I think, you know, there's always this risk in research, isn't there, that one person says something that feels quite meaningful, but then, you know, it's a big, it's a big deal. Whereas I think, and again, I think there's a job for us researchers to do, you know, a lot of the time we'll show one video because that person is articulating themselves really well. And so we show one video, but that represents lots of other things we've heard. But I think maybe if you're not so familiar with it, you'll think, well, that's okay. That one person said it. So, you know, it's reported back. So yeah, I mean, 
I'm not saying it's all my fault, but it's also maybe not all their fault. There's there's a balance to be had. But I'd say that's the the major one. Mm. I don't think that happens quite so much here, probably because we do collaborate a lot. So a lot of the time people will send me stuff to send to check. Um, and so we'll have a quick look through. So if anything like that looks like it's going to happen, we'll catch it quite early. And also because there are three researchers, so it's not loads, but it's not like none. So mm-hmm. we, we sort of have a little bit of an eye on what's what's happening. So again, hopefully we, we usually catch things before they get too much like that. Yeah. Have you found yourself in a situation where you need to help upskill product folks in multiple companies in multiple roles or is this a new one um yeah I'm just trying to think this is the one where I've done it the most um where it's sort of been more of like a strategy and a you know a conscious decision that this is the way we're good this is the sort of the model we're going to follow um in my last two roles I did it a little bit but it was probably a bit more like shadowing you know, where UX designers or service designers actually would sort of work alongside me. And then, yeah, and then then maybe, you know, if we got into something, then they might say, oh, well, can I take this interview now? Or do you mind if Uh I take this bit of analysis? And so it'd be a bit more, you know, of a sort of a handover type thing or, um, but it wasn't so much, I haven't done so much of the like actual training and, you know, setting up tools and things. Um, so that hasn't been the model quite as much, but I've, I also think this feels like maybe it is evolving a bit more generally mm-hmm. as well. So it's yeah. maybe be, like it makes sense. It's become a bit more formalized that, you know, you sort of a, you, you're making a conscious decision. You've had like a conversation to say this is the way we're going to work rather than it just mm-hmm. ending up being like that because of the way the resourcing or the, you know, the yeah. headcount and the structures ended up. Yeah. Cool. Well, that changes um, the the follow up question, which is, you know, in your time, really proactively trying to lead some of this um, instruction on how to do research better. Where have you found the biggest wins, or like, have you tried anything you maybe wouldn't recommend other people try, or where are you getting the best bang for your buck in terms of helping to upskill product folks? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think the biggest win. Um, is like me and my team not needing to do quite as much of the usability basic stuff, which is fine, you know, and obviously it's super valuable. It's just not always quite as rewarding as a researcher Mm -hmm. to do that stuff because it sometimes feels a bit straightforward. So I think like a big win is that we can do plenty of that and we do actually end up, you know, testing a lot of stuff, which we probably wouldn't be able to. So I think, you know, there is a big win in terms of overall what we're able to do. And I think the other big win is just that culture of, um, you know, research being being an option at different stages. I think that's really good. One of the things I'd say is less successful is sort of me and the other researchers being involved in all stages. So I'd really like to be invited to more meetings and workshops as, you know, a bit of an advocate for the user and a voice of the user and somebody who, just knows a lot about our user base and can just add something there. But I think because so many people are doing research, they don't necessarily see the value of that. And I think, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a, there's a little bit about, um, what else was I going to say? There was something else on that one that I was going to say. 
Mm-hmm. Well, that's really interesting because you talked about that a little bit before with, you know, in most organizations, if you have lots of product folks, they probably have a somewhat limited surface area they're focused on. So, you know, the discovery they're going to do is going to be either less specific than it might be that you're doing or less informed. And so you have that horizontal knowledge of what's going on with the business that you could imagine being very useful in lots of conversations. And I think, yeah, how do people know when to pull you in? And to your point, you're one person or three people as an entire team. So obviously you can't be brought in to spend all your time in meetings <laughs> instead of doing research. So I think that's a really yeah. interesting one. I bet a lot of people can relate to. Yeah, because there's a lot of as well people saying, no, I didn't think you'd have the time to do it. I didn't want to ask you because I know you're really busy. And I, right, I'm right. saying, just ask me, it's fine. Like mm-hmm. I can I can manage my time. I can say no if I can't come. But I'd really yeah. like to get the invites. And I do think that's that's a bit of the, the fine balance as well because people are nice and they don't want to, you know, like mm-hmm. fill your calendar up. However, I have been trying to say, like, just ask me, please, because I feel like I can add something and it's valuable and it, you know, it'll be you, it'll be useful. And yeah, I think the other bit is, you know, that always happens with this is, again, when more and more people are doing research and more and more people are doing really good research, it's very, very hard to justify more researchers. And whenever I'm asking for more headcount or, you know, saying, oh, we could really benefit from this and trying to show like actually how much more value there is when one of the researchers is semi-embedded in a squad Mm -hmm. or, you know, when we've got someone who can focus on, you know, one product when it's a big uh, priority for the organisation. Yeah, it that's, it it is, yeah, that makes it really difficult. And so, yeah, I don't know how you get around that one really. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's like you want to put yourself out of a job, but not like literally. (laughs) Right. And so you said there's three of you. Do you like how do you um, break up across, you know, what you focus on? Do you have research ops or are you all, you know, uh, you have three? No, so we all do research ops. So we don't have, yeah, we don't have that. So um, yeah, sort of I'm more holistic. I'll pick up sort of the, the, business priority pieces usually uh-huh. um yeah the one of the researchers is on uh, is focused on apps and then another one's focused on um podcasts and and those okay. products around there we do like so I think it always works better if you have two of you on something even if one's leading it and one's involved a bit because it's always nice to have someone to bounce ideas off isn't it when you're uh-huh. doing your analysis and things so we try and get involved a bit but that's mostly how it works uh-huh. um yeah that's mostly how it works but it, it's really movable like you know it's we are still a new team and you know there's you know there's other people who are new and other changes in ways of working so I'm not sure we've found the ideal model yet we're still working that out I think yeah, yeah. I, I do like what's come through in a lot of the way you talk about this is just being very collaborative and sort of open and, and friendly. It feels like there's a real kind of reaching out across the the different departments and teams and um, kind of building that up and a mentality of sort of doing it together. I feel like sometimes you can hear, I think from a place of very good intentions, it becomes a little bit more territorial or, or combat, you know, combative in terms of approvals and this and that. And um, I do just wonder if that is helping here because, you know, other, you know, sometimes if, if I know I have to go get this thing approved and I'm not sure if it's gonna, but I want to get it done, then maybe you just kind of keep it hidden and then nobody gets to, you know, see it at all. And so have you, is that like been a conscious thing that you all have done or is it sort of just happened because of how you approach things? 
Um, it's very conscious, actually, because my background was in market research and sort of customer insight. And that's what I used to work in. And then I moved over to the uh, UX research and user research about five, six years ago. And the main draw for me was the sort of collaborative. Mm. You know, everything's really transparent and open. Like, that's what I really like about it. So, it, yeah, I feel like it, for me, that's the sort of the number one most important thing to do, actually. And, yeah, not have massive guardrails around it. And even if, you know, we researchers are maybe, you know, the experts and the ones who've, you know, developed our craft the most, it doesn't mean we own things. You know, I do think like that enable, though enablement is a bit of a strange word, isn't it? But, you know, that helping helping the organization to do the best research regardless of the individual who might make it happen yeah is is super important and like it's a bit funny the structure where I am because we actually reporting through the data rather than through product or engineering and which is unusual I think it's not where I've necessarily sat in a in a structure elsewhere I think again that's got its pros and cons you know the pro is probably that it's neutral it's impartial it does mean that we've got that holistic view it does mean that it we are somewhat separate to product though and I think you know that that's not always ideal and you know it there's a I've sort of had to do a bit of work to be involved in things again like I'm lucky because the product people here are great so they do invite me to loads of stuff but it, I guess I wouldn't, nec- you know, I wouldn't be like number one on the invite list. And mm-hmm. when there's sort of strategy and planning, it, I wouldn't necessarily be, you know, at the table straight off, which for me, it would be better if I could be. Yeah, yeah. You you also mentioned, you know, not having a ton of guardrails and stuff, but like, are there certain things that are less of like an upskill and more of like a binary, like you all just have to do this from like a compliance and best practice perspective of make sure you get this consent form or deal with PII this way? Like, are, are there things in that category that, um, you all have also kind of like made sure that the non-researchers are doing correctly. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And it's a really good point that like there is stuff around consent forms and um, what we do for incentives, like how much and how we pay them. There's quite a lot about communications, even though, you know, so how people email potential participants, um, you know, calendar invites, the wording on those. So I don't s- specify exactly what the wording is, but I've the sort of done templates on a lot of these and and say this is what people should use actually some of these the designers have made themselves and said to me oh does this work and I'm like yeah great so you know it's not like they're all written by me but they are kind of uh, they are approved by me there's also something that we you know if we're recruiting sort of participants from our user base again I I am a bit more cautious about that one because I'm aware that you know anything we do we're we're talking on behalf of our brand aren't we so we've we've got to be careful so I feel like that's when we're deciding who's going to take you know whether the product people are going to do it themselves or whether the research team if it if it is with um directly with sort of um our own users that we've recruited through a pop-up or whatever we would be more likely to take those ones um just because again I feel like there's a little bit more risk there so we don't always take them uh, but I suppose that when the decision that would be part of the decision making process. Okay, cool. How how did you get everyone to be aware of those? Like, so everyone knows, like, oh, incentives, we have to do it this way, or consent form, I have to make sure. Like, how do you get that baseline in place? 
Yeah, so we've got a Confluence page with all this stuff, which is mine is part of the product design section on Confluence. So it means like the product designers are the ones who do the most, so it means they can't miss it. We've got um, a Slack channel as well, so I've, I just put some on Slack. And I do do quite often, I'll say, oh, remember this, remember that. Um, on user testing, I didn't before, but I have implemented now that actually no one can launch a test without me or one of the other researchers approving it that's more actually to keep track of our session units and things like that because otherwise they just feel like it could go out of control and we'll have no budget left and that kind of thing so I have put a couple of smaller things like that in as well um but to be honest stuff might have got missed like you know <laughs> I'm not saying it's, it's all perfect I think um the the product design team is is relatively established as much as you know any of our kind of roles are like most people there have been enrolled for a year or more so again like I'm I'm relatively comfortable that they all understand this I think when new people come in we always meet anyway and um yeah so I actually this makes me think I should probably put together a bit of a checklist actually for new people because I probably assume that they've found everything and they might not find it quite as easy as all that so I'll be my to do after this. Cool. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm getting getting so many ideas from this on uh, content that we can create to help people, including this episode. But I think there's a lot of need for the checklists and the templates and the, you know, of course, some of the training is going to be ongoing and learning by doing, of course, but having some of those just get started kind of guides and uh, what do you need to, where do you need to upskill to get started and these sorts of things I think are super useful to folks. I know one area you mentioned uh, that it's helpful to do some training is around the analysis part and the note-taking part, uh, data in, data out. Um, I'm curious if you track or have seen any changes in terms of how product designers and people do research are able to find the best insights from the research they're doing and then use them. I, I know that's a hard thing for people to track everywhere in research, but probably particularly when you're not maybe the one doing the research or the team doing the research. So are you seeing any movement in terms of the research actually being used to make good decisions, for example? Yeah, I mean, I think um, actually the the pace has picked up a bit. So I think that actually might. So I think from what my observations are, there were probably good decisions being made on the back of research but mm-hmm. it was probably not actually being done that efficiently sometimes. So that, you know, people were having to wade through a lot of notes and probably spending a long time on something that, you know, was a relatively small decision to make. So I feel like potentially some of the things we've we've all done together have made people's jobs a bit easier and made them also feel a bit more confident that they don't have to go th- troll through absolutely everything, you know, to discover the insights mm-hmm. that are in there mm-hmm. so I'd say it's maybe that a little bit more that we can probably achieve more feel a bit more confident with it and then move on to the next thing a bit better but like you say it's it is really quite difficult to look at the actual quality of it I feel like sometimes because it's yeah I'm not it would be an interesting um, exercise to think about how exactly you do measure 
the quality of that stuff because um, it's yeah. time consuming yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean because yeah. we were taught into data that you know this mm-hmm, is the kind mm-hmm. of thing that they're always asking about like what was right. the impact sure. of that what, uh-huh. what happened like what changed and the good thing in UX research is that you know it does the point is is this is to change something and generally it does lead to a change um on the you know a next iteration of a prototype or it means that we've made a change on this page or you know it it is quite good for that in terms of it's a bit more definable but on as far as like is this could could this have been actually better could we have got better insights from this that's a very it's quite difficult to answer isn't it but yeah interesting to explore uh what are you excited to do next what's next for for you yeah quest to upskill product folks yeah I don't know actually because um I was talking with this with someone internally because I was saying it needs to stay on the agenda you know like we've done loads in the last year and we need to keep doing it but yeah what's next I mean I did want to do a bit of a mentoring circle actually this was something that I talked about with the team when I first started and I just haven't had a chance to do it but I think that would be quite nice you know like not necessarily a best practice but more just like a people who do research nice safe space to just talk through things and work through things and like you were saying earlier you know like the role play and that kind of thing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just somewhere somewhere to do a bit more of that and I think as well ideally that safe space where others can come in who who want to do research but haven't had a chance yet just to maybe be part of that conversation Um, and I think just you know to work through things so a lot of the time, you know, when you want to work out your hypotheses or think about a question or think about whether research is appropriate in this context, it's good to just have that time to just bounce it around with other people and just get it done rather than, you know, sitting by yourself or even just having a conversation. So I'm just thinking, yeah, that that space to do that. And I think actually in terms of everyone's development, being part of that conversation with others is actually a big part of that. So, you know, if I come and say, oh, you know, this this has come up, I can't decide how whether it's worth researching, I'm trying to figure out exactly what the problem is, can people help me form the hypotheses? You know, to, to do that with others is is building your your research and questioning skills. So yeah, I think I think something like that is what I would like to do I also want to get doing a bit more in-person stuff because I've started Mm. doing some customer closeness you know so I've got some readers and listeners into the office and done like sessions Mm -hmm. with colleagues and them and Mm -hmm. done some little breakouts and they're they're brilliant I absolutely love them Um, and people that come say they're really energized by them so yeah I want to do a bit more of that as well so yeah I've had a lot of product folks come into those but I'd like to maybe yeah get a few more people into those ones as well because yeah they're really nice yeah awesome awesome this has been great thank you so much for joining us no thank you very much yeah this is this has been awesome all right lovely hey there it's me Erin. and me jh we are the hosts of awkward silences and today we would love to hear from you our listeners So we're running a quick survey to find out what you like about the show, which episodes you like best, which subjects you'd like to hear more about, which stuff you're sick of, and more just about you, the fans that have kept us on the air for the past four years. Filling out the survey is just going to take you a couple of minutes. And despite what we say about surveys almost always sucking, this one's going to be fantastic. So userinterviews.com slash awkward survey. And thanks so much for doing that. Thanks for listening. 
Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. <laughs>